Hello again. If you are new here, I'm Chris Connor, your host for CC Life Science. We've got a little bit of a theme going lately. The last episode touched on MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, and rabies in the context of public health. Today, we're going to talk about identifying bacteria in clinical or environmental samples using Raman spectroscopy. I'll just tell you now, you want to keep listening because this episode brings together spectroscopy, nanophotonics, machine learning, and acoustic bioprinting in a powerful combination that might surprise you with the possibilities. Before we start, some people ask me how I get paid. First of all, thanks for asking. I create content for life science companies that looks and sounds a lot like this podcast. Then I turn it into lots of other assets, video, audio, text, static images for use on their website and social channels. Conversations like these tend to bring out the deepest insights that are really your best branding. If you are curious, I'll put a link to my calendar in the show notes. There's no pressure. Let's just chat about what that could look like. I simply enjoy telling stories. Now, let's jump into my interview with Jen Dion. Jennifer Dion is an engineer, educator, and entrepreneur. And among other things, she's an associate professor of materials science and engineering at Stanford. Jen, welcome to CC Life Science. Thanks so much, Chris. It's great to be here. I'm glad to have you. All right, so this one's going to be fascinating. We're going to talk about the detection of bacteria in blood by Raman spectroscopy. Now, uh, this is especially interesting today. I had a conversation with a woman this morning who had sepsis and barely got out of it because of, well, one, her delaying, thinking, oh, it's nothing, and happened to be traveling at the time where you're making decisions that you might not make if you were at home, but this sort of thing is pretty important. So there are lots of technical components here. Describe for my audience briefly Raman spectroscopy for folks who don't remember organic chemistry. Cool. And yeah, happy to dive into what Raman spectroscopy is. And um, I'll also mention that uh, my lab at Stanford is, is broadly interested in detecting bacteria in a wide range of samples. Um, blood is, is one um, yeah, biological fluid that we've looked at, but you could imagine also looking at um, urine or sputum. Um, and we've looked recently at sputum for like tuberculosis, looking at drug susceptibility of TB. Um, we're also excited to look at uh, wastewater and environmental samples for like wastewater-based epidemiology. Um, so I think there's a, a broad range of samples you can look at. Um, and to back up to your question about Raman spectroscopy, um, Raman spectroscopy is, is basically inelastic photon scattering. So if you think about having a laser or some other monochromatic light source, you shine that onto your sample, say onto a cell, like a bacterial cell, and the molecular vibrations in that sample basically add to or subtract from the energy of the laser source. So you wind up with a fingerprint or a series of um, scattered wavelengths that are different from your incident wavelength. And you can use that spectrum to identify the constituents of, of what's in your sample. So it's a process that you know, has, has been known for 
yeah, centuries. I, I think Raman won the Nobel Prize in maybe 1930 or so. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, I think, a really powerful label-free method to identify what is in your sample. And uh, some of the challenges around Raman spectroscopy are first, you know, sensitivity. Yeah, how can you do this at, you know, the few to single molecule level or the few to single cell level? Um, also, uh, kind of interpretability. How can you understand the different peaks that are in your Raman spectra and correlate that back to what your sample constituents are? Um, and then kind of... Um, Reproducibility, so ensuring that in the vast um, range of samples that you might be looking at, that you're getting information about the constituents that you really care about. So, for example, if you're looking at you know, cells in sputum, how can you be sure that the signal is coming from the cell itself and not from the variability, for example, in the patient's sputum? Yes, exactly. I mean, so when I look at a Raman spectrum, it doesn't look like, for example a set of peaks that I might get from a mass spectrometer. Is that fair to say? Like, I Ooh, picture you know, I, I think a, wa actually a, a, a wavy line, but maybe I'm not seeing the most sensitive or high-resolution Raman spectrum. Yeah, you know, I, I think there's a lot of similarities between the signal that you would get from mass spectrometry and the signal that you would get from Raman spectroscopy. Um, in mass spec, you're looking at the mass to charge ratio of the, um, you know, ions or atoms that are in your sample. Um, in Raman spectroscopy, you're basically looking at the vibrational modes of your sample. And um, if you were to look at um, a smaller molecule, you would get very, you know, sharp peaks. Or if you were to look at a crystal, right? So, I think right. when you start looking at kind of smaller molecules or pure samples, you'd start noticing that your Raman spectra looked a little bit more like the mass spec um, results that you were getting. Um, if you've looked at some of our labs or other labs, say single cell Raman spectra, there you have kind of a convolution of your, your lipids, your proteins, you know, your cell membrane, like the nucleus. So there are a lot of kind of overlapping molecular signatures and that's what gives rise to kind of much broader peaks that you're seeing at the single cell level than you would get from, say, a, a mass spec, which is usually a fragmented based approach. So you're kind of, you know, uh, fragmenting your cell into smaller pieces anyway, and then fitting that back together. Right. So that's, yeah, I, I wasn't even thinking about that, but it is the mixture that gives you that thing. And so are you deconvoluting it to find those components? How is that done? Or, um, you know, how do you know when you're looking at, like you say, um, for bacteria in sputum that you're not looking at a component of the sputum or you're looking at bacteria and which components of the bacteria? Because we're going to get to that, right? I mean, about yeah. drug susceptibility, but go ahead. Like, Yeah, exactly. So um, the Raman spectra that we get is um, at the whole cell level. So we're looking at single cell Raman spectra. We're not fragmenting the cell itself. Um, and what we do is um, collect Raman spectra of many examples of different cell types um, where we already know the ground truth of this is E. coli or this is MRSA or this is, um, you know, a, a Staph epi bacterium. Um, 
And then uh, from those many examples of single cell Raman scattering, we can pick out what are the salient features that are giving rise to um, differentiation between that particular cell species and a different cell species. Um, and to provide an example there that maybe is a little bit more concrete, um, we have a paper just posted on the archive that um, we collaborated on with um, some folks at the Reagan Institute, um, as well as with Manu Prakash at Stanford and, and Niaz Benet, a microbiologist, where we were looking at the um, antibiotic drug susceptibility of tuberculosis. So TB is um, uh, an, an ongoing ec epidemic. Um, it's rather easy to identify whether or not someone has an active TB infection, but it can take up to about 40 days to culture the TB to be able to figure out which antibiotic a patient might respond to. So what we wanted to um, understand is whether from the Raman signature we could predict um, what the drug susceptibility would be. So here the idea would be that you could... Um, Basically, like in the you know, TB endemic region, just have a microscope slide that identifies, yes, here's a TB cell. And then from the Raman spectra, determine you know, which antibiotic that TB would be most responsive to. Um, so we collected Raman spectra of um, many tens of thousands of um, TB, which had known susceptibility or resistance profiles to different antibiotics. Um, and what we could do is then, once we collect the spectra, figure out, first of all, how differentiable are those to tell us, is it susceptible or resistant to, um, say, amikacin or moxiflacin or isonazid, you know, different antibiotic choices. And then we could also figure out which features, like which spectral features were most important for identification. So this finally brings us back to your question of, like, how do we break down the Raman spectra um, we, of course, know from the literature, from our own analyses, what um, signatures are of certain important you know, peptides or proteins or molecules. But sometimes you want to do almost like an unbiased or de novo search of what are those salient features that are giving rise to differentiation. And what we found in the TB case is that the features most important for differentiation or classification by antibiotic drug susceptibility correlate to um, mycolic acid and kind of changes in that mycolic acid like cell wall thickness. Um, and this corroborated quite nicely with what microbiologists know to be like resistant pathways for, for TB. So what makes it really effective then is the fact that the drug resistance is sort of... Um, a phenotype, if you will, it is a phenotype, but of a major component of the cell. Is that mm -hmm. right? Am I thinking about that right? So a large part of, you know, the cell wall or the membrane is is being changed. And so you know the spectra from the molecule itself, and then you can see a change in that part of the Raman spectra of the entire bacteria when you're looking at a sample. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's right. Exactly. Got it. So, and the cool um, thing in this um, yeah. particular paper, we were able to look at different um, genetic point mutations. So um, when you have uh, basically a, a change in the you know genome or the transcriptome, that can give rise to yeah, a change in the proteome, 
right? So there are likely four different point mutations, you know, different proteomic expression profiles or different amino acids or potentially different phenotypic, as you mentioned, expressions um, that could become evident in um, a single cell Raman spectra. And have you seen those? I mean, I think we talked about this a little bit when you and I met before about a single, a change in a single protein that now I'm going to ask about the abundance of those that you can actually detect um, in a spectrum. Yeah. I mean, that's such a great question. Probably the million or billion dollar question. <laughs> um, we have done, at least in our TB work that's posted on archive, we have looked at single cell point mutations and shown that with those single cell or uh, single nucleotide point mutations that uh, we can still classify accurately the drug susceptibility or drug resistance profile. Um, and at least with the preliminary data we have, it seems like we can even differentiate between different single point mutations, which I think is pretty exciting, right? Because uh, resistance evolves usually through these point mutations. So in very preliminary data, I think we can differentiate that. If you want to really drill down to kind of quantitative protein expression levels, I think there's a lot more work and probably a lot more controls to be done at the single cell level. Um, so kind of still to be determined if from the whole cell level, we can determine what the proteomic expression profile might be. Um, I do have a startup company, and I think uh, you got to meet some of my co-founders a while ago that um, is is trying to enable kind of yeah, high-throughput and high-resolution protein sequencing and, and the hope would be to do single-cell proteomics and you know, from those point mutations be able to quantitatively determine what is the you know, protein expression level, you know, what are the post-translational modifications, um, and be able to correlate some of the single-cell Raman spectra that my lab has collected with like the proteomic expression profiles. Yeah, no, that is mind-blowing for sure. I mean, I wasn't even thinking about doing absolute proteomics. I was really thinking about how how abundant does a protein with a mutation have to be to actually be visible in the spectrum? I mean, if it was 10 copies per cell, would you see it? Or is it hundreds of thousands of copies needed to be detected when you're looking at the whole cell? <laughs> I mean, that's a great question. And I think uh, the verdict is still out. Um but I'd estimate, you know, probably based on the data we've seen right now, of order probably a few hundreds of thousand proteins, we would be able to see that change in the Raman spectra. Wow. All right. Okay, so um, you and I met at the, um, the Welch Conference last October, which was fantastic. And um, it was all about well, it wasn't all about, but photonics was a big part of that. And so I've got a note here to ask you about SIRS, which is Surface Enhanced Raman Spectroscopy. So for our non-chemist audience, which I think is probably most everybody, just so you know, <laughs> tell us a little bit about that, because this is fascinating to me. Cool. Great question. So yeah, I've been at Stanford about 13 and a half years, and my lab at Stanford has uh, focused on uh, this field called nanophotonics. So how do you control light at the nano and molecular scale? 
And my lab has been particularly excited about applications in global health and sustainability and you know, developing new materials and methods that allow us to detect molecules and then also direct their transformation. So use light to cause the molecules to you know, transform or, or turn into certain products. Um, and at the, the Welch meeting where we were celebrating, uh, Carolyn Bertozzi, um, who won the Welch award just before, uh, you know, her announcement as Nobel laureate, um, I had presented on some of the materials that my lab has developed to allow for you know, very sensitive, um, kind of molecular detection. And at the start of um, the podcast, you were asking me to explain a bit about Raman spectroscopy. And I mentioned that one of the challenges really is in you know, sensitivity. Um, how do you enable, you know, few to single molecule Raman spectroscopy um, in like a you know, robust and, and reproducible way? And uh, since Raman is like an inelastic photon scattering process, it's not very efficient. Usually it's just like, you know, one in a million to one in a hundred million photons that are inelastically scattered. And your experience kind of points to this. If you were to take a laser pointer and, you know, send it to the glass, you know, window behind you, most of the light that gets scattered back to your eyes is going to be that same green laser pointer. You're not going to see, you know, a lot of colors that are, you know, red or, or infrared. So what my lab has done is develop materials that um, basically enhance the efficiency of Raman scattering, especially when you don't have you know, very much sample to work with, which is often the case when you're trying to interrogate you know, low abundance biological materials. Um, so what we do is essentially develop kind of a maybe sophisticated um, and highly miniaturized you know, magnifying lenses that can focus light to the single cell um, and in some cases down to the single molecule level. Um, so that way we can make this Raman scattering process you know, much more efficient. Um, and light, you know, is uh, basically an, an electric and a magnetic field that are oscillating in time. Um, and the efficiency of Raman scattering scales as the electric field of light raised to the fourth power. So if you can develop, you know, a really good miniaturized magnifying lens that concentrates light and kind of enhances the electric field of light by, you know, a hundred or a thousand X, now your Raman scattering process becomes extremely efficient, right? You can get Raman scattering cross sections that start to approach that of what you might get, for example, with fluorescence. So yeah, my lab is broadly focused on nanophotonics, controlling light at the nanoscale. And in the context of Raman, we've tried to develop materials that allow for very sensitive Raman spectroscopy. And we focus the light in such a way where there's no heating um, to the biological specimen. So unlike conventional kind of um, surface-enhanced Raman spectroscopy substrates, which usually are metals. We work with materials like semiconductors that can focus the light, but don't absorb the light. So that way there's no heating to our biological specimen, and then we can interrogate it, you know, for longer periods of time if we want to look at dynamics. Nice. That was essentially for me the entire takeaway of the Welch Conference. What I learned was the ability to essentially... I want to say squeezy electric field into a smaller and smaller space. So the environment around whatever you're looking at gets really intense 
and different kinds of information, more of the same information, all of those things are can be extracted from that. That's right. That's right. And I, I think what's really cool about Raman spectroscopy in particular is that it's very information rich and information dense. So depending upon which spectral regimes you're looking at, you can get information about lipids or proteins or nucleic acids, or even within any of those, you can get information, say, about the protein, you know, primary structure or secondary structure or post-translational modification. So yeah, there's a ton of information to be gleaned from the Raman spectra. And the challenge is, you know, how do you get that information out from, you know, a single molecule or a single cell? And that's where you need to develop some of these tricks that, like you say, squeeze light down, you know, to a size that's more comparable to the you know, specimen that you're interrogating. But then simultaneously, you don't want to squeeze it down and burn it. So you need to make sure that you're not <laughs> heating things up. Yeah, it's all, yeah. It's fascinating to me. Okay, so going back to the original thing where your goal is to, let's say, analyze numerous samples, bacterial samples, and ask which of these are susceptible or resistant to an antibiotic or whatever other assay you want to choose. Um, one of the components of that is acoustic bioprinting. So tell us a little bit about how that's used so you can get, if I'm understanding it right, lots and lots of samples on a small surface. Mm, cool. Yeah, great question. So one of my students, uh, Furia Safir, recently defended her um, PhD and published a paper that came out in Nanoletters talking about how you could um, more rapidly identify bacteria in whole blood um, and you mentioned at the top of the hour that your friend had uh, recently gone through uh, sepsis, and my heart goes out to her. I hope she's you know fully recovered at this point. Sepsis is one of those really scary conditions where you know each um, passing hour without like suitable diagnosis can decrease a patient's survival by you know, seven to ten percent. So you really want to catch it, you know, in a timely fashion. Um, and one of the challenges in detecting yeah, sepsis is that there are so few bacteria in blood. Um, so you generally only have, um, you know, a, maybe one up to 10 colony forming units or one to 10 bacteria per milliliter of blood. And my colleague, uh, professor and Dr. Nias Benet in, in microbiology and infectious disease at Stanford is uh, really an expert in you know, clinical microbiology and in sepsis. And he handles um, the vast majority of all samples that come out of um, Stanford's hospital. Um, and the workflow that has been used kind of historically for sepsis um, and that my colleague uh, Niaz Benet uses is to um, you know, take the patient blood, usually it's about 10 milliliters of blood, and then you um, culture the bacteria, which can take... Um, you know, maybe 12 to 24 hours. It's a naturally slow process, just depending upon how long it takes the bug to divide and multiply. And then once you know there's a positive blood culture, then you'll either use molecular methods or mass spec to identify which um, bacteria it is. And then there's a final step, which is the antibiotic susceptibility testing. And that can take an additional like 12 to 24 hours. So in the meantime, uh, you know, a patient is in the hospital and you want to be 
you know, ensuring you're treating them. And uh, more often than not, they're given antibiotics based on empirical evidence. Um, and uh, sometimes they're given just broad spectrum antibiotics, which um, can give rise to emerging antimicrobial resistance. So Niaz is actually the one who reached out to my lab probably about five years ago at this point where he had seen some of our work in nanophotonics and wanted to know if we could, um, you know, apply some of these methods to control light at the nanoscale to kind of more rapid detection of um, sepsis or the bacteria that are causing sepsis and their drug susceptibility. So I just want to make sure I give a, a shout out to Niaz because he's been an amazing collaborator to work with and someone who's provided us with countless um, clinical samples and also incredible expertise. Um, so the idea we came up with was um, to basically take a blood sample. And as I mentioned, you don't have too many bacteria in that blood sample. And normally you need to wait for culturing. Um, what we wanted to do is kind of quickly digitize that blood sample into droplets that contain just a few cells. So that's where the acoustic droplet ejection came in, or it's essentially a bioprinter. Um, and the way it works is you um, can create miniaturized droplets that contain anywhere from a single cell to, you know, a few tens of cells. Um, so you very quickly print these droplets, and we can print them at kilohertz rates. So like thousands to tens of thousands of droplets per second and as the droplet is being ejected, you can um, collect a Raman spectra. And that Raman spectra, if you've trained it on enough bacteria and blood cells, you can now pick out, oh, there's a bacteria in this droplet because you only have, say, 10 cells. And even if there's just one bacteria in there, what we've done is look at about 30 different bacterial species and strains. So we know which features correspond to different bacterial cell types. And you were asking earlier, like, oh, how many, you know, proteins do you think you could pick up on that yeah. are different? And it's yeah. probably, you know, back of the envelope estimate, maybe 100 to 1,000 different proteins. But in a droplet that only has, say, 20 cells in it, we can pick up on just one bacteria because we know what features correspond to bacteria compared to red blood cells or white blood cells. So now what we can do is take just second-long integrations of each droplet as it's being ejected and then from there, identify, is there a bacteria in the sample? And if so, what bacteria is it? And what drug susceptibility will it have? Got it. Okay, so that was different than the acoustic printing I've thought of before, where it's going onto a plate. It sounds more like almost flow cytometry, as you're, you're measuring these droplets as they're flying by. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a great point. And it's a, a subtle distinction. So in the paper we published, we printed them onto a substrate, A, because we want to know how many cells are in the droplet, and it's just easier to go back and do scanning electron microscopy and actually count the cells that are in the droplet. So kind of the printing onto a substrate allowed us to determine how many cells are there. Um, and the printing onto a substrate also let us determine basically the ground truth. So now we can collect single cell Raman or single droplet Raman spectra. And then we can say, oh, we think from the Raman spectra that this droplet has a bacteria in it. And then we can go back and look at the SEM and say, yep, indeed, we can see there's like a staph epi in there. But in terms of any commercial output, like you said, it would be more like flow cytometry where now you can rapidly eject each of these droplets 
and then, you know, at essentially close to the rate of printing, be able to collect the Raman spectra. Got it. Yeah. So you're, you're measuring them as they go by, and then the surface is a permanent record that lets you correlate what you saw. Exactly. As you're flying by, here's what was actually in there. Exactly. Nice. Yep. All right. And then, um, and maybe we should have talked about this a little sooner, but machine learning is used to, um, well, you have trained a, a machine learning model to identify those bacterial fingerprints, right? That's mm -hmm. yep. essentially building up the library that you have that says this bacteria looks like this and so on and so on. Yep, exactly. So what we've done is collect at least thousands of examples of each type of bacteria. And then within there, you can think about different subclasses of bacteria that have different antibiotic resistance profiles. Um, and depending upon how the cell is oriented in the droplet or how it might land on the surface, you can think about this as a snapshot, right? You're getting um, you know, a Raman spectra that is representative of that particular you know, angle or profile of the cell. Um, and when you look at different profiles, there can be variations in the Raman spectra, but in having collected enough examples, we now know kind of what would the full 3D cell look like. And even if we're seeing just an angle of it, we can then identify, you know, which bacteria it is. So it's kind of like if, if I took a picture of you, you know, head on versus a profile shot, you know, that I do a pretty good job of probably recognizing you, but it also helps that during the podcast, you're kind of tilting your head many different ways. So I'm getting many different examples of, of what a portrait of Chris looks like. So we yeah. essentially do the no, same thing. What is a portrait of E. coli? I hadn't even thought of it that way as, you know, I can understand the variability just within a subset or a subclass of a certain type of bacteria, but hadn't really thought about the physical angle at which you're looking at those things and then you build up. So that is, that is next level. <laughs> <laughs> Jen Dion, this has been a treat. I hope everybody's thank you for your patience, educating me about chemistry. I hope everybody hung in there with me and uh, enjoyed it as much as I did. Cause yeah, this is way out of my uh, wheelhouse. Should we say? But this has been great. Aww. Thank you. Yeah, Chris, thanks so much for taking the time. And um, yeah, maybe just in concluding, I'll say I think there's a pretty exciting future. I mentioned at the top of the podcast that Raman spectroscopy has been around for a while. But I do think that advances in sample processing and also in kind of AI and ML are providing a lot more insight into the Raman spectra and you know, I think there's a, a pretty exciting untapped future in terms of, say, wastewater-based epidemiology or, you know, diagnostics or, um, you know, protein sequencing based on Raman spectroscopy. So thanks for all the really great questions and uh, looking forward to future opportunities. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, Jen, for being on the show. I hope you all enjoyed that. I have another episode coming in September on a related topic with, of course, a few episodes in between. I talked to Mike Mahan from UC Santa Barbara about the gap between the gold standard in antibiotic susceptibility testing 
and the reality in the clinic, which I promise you will find interesting, as well as a possible new class of antibiotics that is very exciting. Until the next time, please subscribe and share the podcast with your colleagues. It's greatly appreciated. Bye-bye.